Chapter forty of Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, Volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arlene Stebbins. Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, Volume two, by Moncure Conway. Chapter forty. In 1871, on the roof of University Library, Berlin, I saw the King review his victorious armies. Here expanded the million-leaved Victoria Regia, whose roots had been fed by that red flood in France. Minister Bancroft, whose hospitality I enjoyed, was full of enthusiasm at the rise of a Teutonic United States and I was in joy that the Napoleonic nightshade had perished. But I could not enjoy the magnificent festival of the conquerors. From the moment when the bugles sounded the approach of the splendid cortege, those bugles that sounded the call to the slaughter at Gravelotte, I saw the triumphal march of the king, princes, warriors, and their fine steeds trampling human beings. Just opposite University Library a dingy man had climbed up fifty feet, and sat on the head of equestrian Frederick the Great, waving his hat to every personage and equipage passing beneath him. I put that aspirant in my notebook. He suggested to me the necessity of viewing the scene from the historic head of Germany's far past. But I could not rid myself of the thought of Mencius of China. When a man says I know well how to draw up an army, he is a great criminal. To be elated with victory is to rejoice in the destruction of human life. Those who have been victorious in battle are disposed in the order of a funeral. The Berlin theatres were blazing with patriotic scenes. But at Kroll's there was a strange little play, Berlin nach Paris. A German soldier courts a French maiden who accepts him, because she knows the Germans are always faithful. At that moment a German girl, the cross on her arm, appears and finds her lover in that faithful youth. It was well acted, and moved many to tears. Most of the pieces, however, were spectacular. The performances at the opera on Sunday evening were indescribably magnificent. All the royal family, the German princes, the military chiefs, the diplomatic corps, I sat with the Bancrofts, were present. The finest artists and dancers had been searched out for the ballets and tableaus. These represented the legend of Barbarossa, who after his slumber of ages awakens to find a united Germany. The awakened Barbarossa was an admirable make-up of the king who from his box bowed in response to the plaudits. Beautiful Fräulein Erhardt, as Germania, in a Greek war-dress, spoke finally the prologue, during which she unveiled statues of Frederick the Great and Frederick William the Third. The final tableau represented the king, proclaimed emperor, mounted on his horse in Paris, and suddenly unveiled all the states of Germany, beautiful women with heroically displayed forms, bearing the various ensigns. At the desire of my friend Matilda Blind, I called on the Frau Levold in Berlin, 
who in the five years since the suicide of Ferdinand Blind, brother of Matilda, had laid wreaths on the youth's tomb in the cemetery. Frau Levald, a beautiful and accomplished lady, did not oppose me when I deplored the young man's attempt on Bismarck, but she regarded the Chancellor as the evil genius of Germany, and felt some satisfaction in his having alluded, in the Reichstag, to the decorating of that tomb by ladies in high position. She said, There are sorrows beneath all this joy. There will be no reaction in the movement for freedom in Germany. As for Christianity, no educated people in Berlin have real belief in it. The other day a preacher told the children of a school which my son attends that belief, in the New Testament sense of the word, was no longer expected. They must try to be good. In one respect, war had been more discriminate in Germany than in the Union War in America. It did not sweep off the youth of the universities. In America, war appealed to the brilliant and cultured young scholars with a pretext of liberty and humanity. But the Franco-German War was a mere duel between old antagonists on a quarrel about succession to the Spanish throne. It was a pawn game. But how close is hid the future? One sentence I find in my notebook of the royal cortege, remarking, because of his youth, the crown prince's son on a little dark grey horse. That is all. The evil fate of German literature was riding on that little dark horse. At the house of Lepsius, to whom I brought letters, I met Curtius, the brothers Bunsen, Karl and Heinrich, Professor Albin Vorstadt, and others. Geltzer of Basel, and Blackie of Edinburgh, also being there at a special evening company. The German professors were rejoicing that the war was over because of the turmoil, but were less inclined to talk about its results than we foreigners. When I asked Lepsius about the Egyptian devils, he was amused, and said, The living devils seem so numerous just now that one has hardly opportunity to study the dead ones, or anything else but he gave me useful information for the lectures I was preparing on demonology. Curtius, too, was evidently tired of war talk. He spoke excellent English, and had studied all English works on Greece. Grote, he thought, without taste for Greek art, while Thirval was better, but without feeling for Greek religion. Curtius had a fair, beardless, somewhat feminine face, and was an engaging man in conversation. I was rather surprised by those university men being so fine-looking. There in the elegant house of Lepsius, himself handsome, with his silken white hair and face full of sensibility, the German guests were all noble in appearance, and polished in manners. I carried on my merry devil-hunt in old towns, especially in Leipzig, an Auerbach cellar, but was now and then saddened by coming across tracks of the real devil war. I travelled with haggard Germans returning to their homes from French prisons or hospitals, and French invalids trying to reach home. I arrived in Munich just in time to witness the first performance of Wagner's Rienzi. All the people of rank and fashion in Bavaria were present. My confession, after having heard all of Wagner's other operas, I prefer Rienzi above them 
will excite the laughter of Wagnerians, and I must conciliate them by acknowledging that the spell was woven about me by the messengers of peace. The nightmare that followed my journalistic tramp on battlefields had been revived by the apotheosis of war at Berlin. But they were dispelled by the troop of beautiful olive-bearers, and their wondrous Freuenscher. We hear their gentle theme in the distance, rising as they approach, clad in pure white, each bearing her olive-branch. They slowly file upon the stage, and oh, the tenderness and exultation of that chorus! They disappear slowly while singing. Their voices are heard more and more faintly. The song ceases. After a little silence the strain is wafted back again, as on a fitful wind. Again silence. Yet once or twice more the theme reaches us, as if the peaceful messengers were passing here and there in open space. The spectators, the most brilliant assembly I ever saw, all the ladies in court dress, sat breathless, too profoundly moved to applaud. In another scene I recognized in the composer a Prospero creating a fairer world than that hard and heartless imperial realm, whose barbaric splendors I had seen in Berlin. Amid the appropriate gorgeousness of ancient Rome, the gladiators appear in the Colosseum, and perform their combats, when, lo, the eternal feminine, gathering by hundreds from every part of the vast stage the dancers come, no man among them, like lustrous fleecy cloudlets. Dance follows dance. Now they are spirits in hues of heaven. Now sea-tinted nymphs, or again green-girt goddesses of the forest. All nature transfigured in their shining faces and forms, they draw the gladiators after them with ropes of wreathed flowers. Each phalanx throw each his shield upon his head, making thus a floor beneath which the gladiators stand as pillars, while upon this shield floor the hundreds of beauties dance in the art-created era, when all chains shall turn to flowers, and shields into dancing-floors. This resplendent ballet was almost too much for the audience. They stood up, waved handkerchiefs, and shouted with one voice for Wagner. But the Prospero had hit himself. He had long been working with Conductor Vilner on the mighty orchestra. He had personally concerned himself with every detail of scene and costume. He had mounted tableaus unequalled in the history of the German theatre. And neither he nor any of the great artists, Nachbauer, Fräulein Leonov, Kendermann, Fräulein Stähle, could be induced to thrust their personalities upon the stage. I carried to Munich a letter to Kalbach, but had found in his decorations of Berlin Museum, his paintings of Goethe's Faust in Auerbach's cellar at Leipzig, in the splendid curtain, the muse, in the Munich Opera House, and the Christian and pagan legends with which he had covered the edifices of the city of the monk, a cumulative introduction to him. Kaulbach was, in the largeness of his work and the character of his subjects, a sort of Wagner, and in personal build and immortal youthfulness he was not unlike Wagner, though finer-looking, and he had happiness in his face which Wagner had not. Naturally, for in his magnificent house and park were beautiful ladies, 
his wife and daughters, whose intelligence and taste surrounded him with all charms congenial to an artist. I passed a happy evening with them, and was especially interested in the artist's account of the Oberammergau passion-play to which tourists were crowding. The war having deferred it to 1871, Kaulbach said that he had long ceased to attend it. Thirty years before it had charmed him. It was a series of pictures that moved the heart, presented with intense feeling, beheld by the peasants with silent fervor. The homeliness of the acting rendered it the more impressive. Around us, said Kaulbach, were the solemn mountains with their snow, the primitive forest, the songs of birds. But it has been adapted to the tourists. It is given over to sophisticated people, and has lost its early charm. At Munich I met a charming American artist, David Neal. Born poor in some New England village, he made a living by carving little engravings for newspaper advertisements, found his way to San Francisco, and while engraving pictures for books was told by a fellow workman that he ought to aspire to higher work. Neil found his way to Munich, where he found employment under the artist, afterwards Count, Einmüller, who presided over the Glasmalerei. Einmüller sent him to Pilotti, and Neil became a fine colorist. He married Einmüller's daughter. Neil had among his small pictures one representing Watt as a boy, seated in a chimney corner, in a kitchen, studying the phenomena of a kettle. His comely mother opens the door to call him to supper where the other children are seen. I persuaded Neil to put this on a large canvas, which he did, and sent it to London. I offered it to the Royal Academy where it was hung, and was bought for a substantial sum. The grateful young artist presented my wife with the original small picture. David Neil took me to the Hofbrauhaus, an official brewery, where eminent personages were drinking Bock, from Einbock, Brunswick, where it was first made. Among the charcoal sketches on the walls were two new, Bismarck with three aggressive hairs upright on his bald head, and Napoleon III swinging from a gallows. Pius Ninth was caricatured leading a fat pig with the features of the Archbishop of Munich. Passion-play actors were also caricatured, each woman very décolleté, some of these being apparently of the previous century. Such was the outcome of a town given over for centuries to the sway of München, monks, whose name it bears. The old Catholic movement could not be saved from such Mephistophelian antics in the city of its origin. And, by the way, I believe it was the favor shown to the devil, in Munich, as a subject of caricatures which led to the withdrawal of Satan from the Passion Play. Professor Piertz of Munich, brother-in-law of Lady Lyell, who introduced me to him, informed me that he had found in the archives indications that the Passion Play had been preceded at Oberammergau by plays representing the gods and goddesses of mythology. The plays were, however, originally merely incidental to the main industry of the place, wood-carvings of holy figures, explained by the vendors. Under Christianity the play became the main thing, 
but the carving industry continues all the year round. I voyaged up the Wermsee, making notes of its dragon legend, and was jolted in a primitive wagon with primitive folk to Oberammergau. I found comfortable lodgment in the house of the Langs, whose daughter Josepha had the part of Mary Magdalene. The art of the librettists in making the wrath against Jesus and the whole tragedy turn on the assault on the temple merchants was notable, though not scriptural. It was comic to see them picking up their coins. But there are vendors of holy candles in the churches also. The automatic Christ of Joseph Meyer was meant for automatic worshippers. A few relics of the form of simplicity recalled by Kalbach were visible e.g. the Greek style of the chorus, the naked legs of Adam and Eve, the disciples drinking beer at the noon entracte. Jesus was more finely dressed than the disciples. He was robed in red, and wore silk stockings. John also wore stockings, the other disciples being barefoot. An interesting event for me at Munich was an interview with Dr. Döllinger, on whom the eyes of Europe were fixed more than on the new incarnation of infallibility at Rome. He felt that this dogma of 1869 was fatal to his church, but could see no hope in Protestantism. He spoke of the Protestants as consoling themselves for the disintegration and inefficiency of their visible churches with thoughts of the assumed glory of an invisible church, possessing in fanciful perfection all that is lacking in the visible. This reminder that a suffering world is not to be comforted, or saved, by a disembodied utopia made me feel that he, too, with his old Catholic staff, was on his earthward pilgrimage. There was little about the man or his library to suggest the priest. From between the loaded bookshelves looked down the faces of the great of all ages and churches, the chief picture being a Madonna and child. The doctor was simple in his manner. He was dressed in plain black without any ecclesiastical or other badge. Head and face were freighted with force, his voice gentle and winning. His English was excellent. His seventy years were recorded only in such lines as long study furrows. They had hardly touched his dark hair, and only added vivacity to his large eye. I was delighted with his humor. It was excited by a story I had heard of Archbishop Purcell of Cincinnati said to have gone to Rome as an opponent of infallibility. Introduced into the presence of the Pope, the Archbishop fell on his knees. The Pope bade him rise. He then tried to kiss His Holiness' toe. The Pope took him by the hand and raised him up. He would next kiss the Pope's hand. The Pope opened his arms and clasped him to his breast. Dollinger's laugh at this evidence of infallibility was hearty. The hardest thing I have had to bear, he said, was the closing of the room where I have lectured more than forty years. My trouble was increased by messages of kindness and confidence from the students. They wished me to meet them in indirect ways, but this I would not do. This ending of an old man's customary work is hard, but it cannot be helped. I thought again of his sad look when I heard afterwards that the students had unanimously demanded that Dillinger should be president of their university. His chief disappointment was that the American bishops, 
once against ultramontanism, had gone over to the new dogma. The adhesion in England he considered the work of Manning. He showed me a Catholic paper just received from New York containing a bitter attack on him. In this article, he said, there is just one thing true. It accuses me of having conceived the hope of a union of Christian churches throughout the world. Of that I am guilty. Nothing has interested me more than the letters I have received from Protestants in all parts of the world confessing that their several churches are in an unsatisfactory condition, and hoping that our struggle here may give rise to a larger and more spiritual organization. I am unable to see any basis for such an organization, except the Christian idea, and that has been for Europe historically shaped in the Catholic Church. Whatever situation in the evolution of a universal church shall reveal itself must be dealt with as it arises. At present, so far as my horizon extends, the struggle against this new dogma is vigorous. But that has already called about it false principles and political designs. Many things must fall with that dogma of infallibility. The whole machinery by which it was imposed, for example— we have enough work cut out for us without looking farther. On my asking what were the opinions of the lower classes, he smiled at the idea of their having any opinions. After the priest has spoken, it would never occur to one of them that there could be any other opinion. The chief difficulty we have is not the opposition, but the utter apathy of the people. It does not affect them personally, and they find the question uninteresting. Possibly the increasing complication of the issue with politics may give them more serious impressions. As to the effect of the new dogma on Catholic theology, he said, the question which has arisen between us and Rome is one of life or death to theology. Should the dogma of infallibility be accepted, there could be no such thing as theology. No man with self-respect would put pen to paper only to bolster predetermined opinions that might not be his own. The rewriting of decrees is not theology. Tom Hughes and his wife received their friends on Sunday evenings at high tea, and high matters were discussed. There were still a few grey heads like mine, in which are cherished memories of that lovely family. At their table I sometimes met William Evelyn, who dwelt in historic Wooden House, Surrey and was heir to the virtues and intelligence of his ancestor, the author of Silva, who lived there two centuries before him. Among the most beautiful days of my life I count several passed in the grand library left by that scholarly gentleman, who passed unstained through the storms of the seventeenth century. William Evelyn drove me about to the homesteads of the Noels and Byrons and other old families, and we even called upon Tupper. On one of my visits to Wootton, Rev. Thomas Arnold and his wife were also guests there. Their daughter, Mrs. Humphrey Ward, as yet unknown, did not inherit her mother's beauty, nor her sparkling humour. But I have often reflected that with such parents she could hardly escape a notable career. Thomas Arnold, slender, superfine in countenance and expression, nervous, his delicate mouth sometimes twitching, was more striking in appearance than his brother Matthew, and resembled more their sister, Mrs. W. E. Forrester. 
It has always been a matter of regret that I did not then know of the fair dreams of a new society, with which in early life he had been inspired by the writings of George Sand, and which had carried him away to New Zealand, to found there his utopia. In September 1871 my wife and daughter were invited with me to Wooten Harvest Home Festival. The workpeople being mostly dissenters, the sermon was given by a Baptist preacher, and was poor enough to excite my regret that the intelligent vicar who was present did not preach. The parable of wheat and tares was turned to the sorry sense of good and bad people dwelling together, under one roof, sometimes husband and wife, till one should burn in hell, and the other sing in paradise. Afterward there were sports, cricket, croquet, racing, then a fine dinner and a grand marquee, young ladies of the neighborhood waiting on the laborers. After the usual toast to the Queen, the bailiff gave a toast to Evelyn, our master, more important to us than the Queen. After Evelyn had spoken, with his characteristic modesty and tact, I was called on, and contrasted the death-harvest I had witnessed at Gravelotte the year before, with the happy harvest home in Surrey. Alas, so closely are the wheat and tares bound together, that in these later years the conclusion is forced on me, that it is precisely because those toilers in English fields never look on the face of war, that England can freely send out armies to mow down men in every other part of the world. Wooten's nearest town is Dorking, where in a deep and floral glen the flint house hides itself, and gives a pretty hermitage to the fine literary artist George Meredith. In the few times that I have met him, he was delightful, his imagination putting out his fancy to represent it in sparkling talk that could hardly prepare one for the depth and passion of his poetry. For I always love Meredith's poetry better than his novels, these impressing me as too often containing involved intimations of vital things in order to escape the deletions of Mrs. Grundy, to whom all proof must be submitted. End of chapter 40